Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to GCSE English Revision Pod. I am here as ever with my good friend Mr. Forster. How are you doing today? It depends how you define here. Like we're here in the this moment together in time, but very much in terms of space where we're not here. Um, because that no. would be very COVID unsafe, Mr. Gully. We're here in in the in the virtual space created by Zencaster that allows us our two voices to be merged together, much in the way that Language Paper One Question Four requires you to merge your skills of both selection of the best pieces of information, but also your analysis of exactly what that language teaches us as a reader. That's a really confusing simile when we're looking at question two today, Mr. Galley. What did I say? You said question four. Ah, uh, well, that was not what I meant, clearly. Apologies, <laughs> listeners. Question two was what I was what I was trying to say and has clearly ruined what would have otherwise been a pretty spectacular analogy, but never mind. So, as I was saying, we if you're new to GCSE Revision Pod, welcome, welcome, welcome. In this episode, as with all our episodes, we will go through a particular question from one of your GCSE papers. When we do literature, we go through a long form essay and we talk about how we would address a whole essay. But when we do these English language revision pods, what we do instead is we go through a particular question at a particular time. And today we are going to focus on an extract from the novel Life of Pi. But before we get into that, Mr. Forster, you wanted to remind our listeners of some other resources they can access to um, to help them with this part of the exam. Yeah, so just if you click on the details of this podcast or whatever you're listening on, you should find some links to some Google Docs. One for the handout for today's lesson. As always, we always have a handout with key vocabulary, with some of our analysis in case we do go too quickly and you want something for your revision folders. There's also a revision pack that we've put together with top tips for each question, um, model answers and some scaffolds that should help you in your revision. It's also got some revision exercises if you want to have a go at some questions yourselves. Um, Fantastic. I'd also say about particularly practicing for English language is the best way to practice is actually by doing. So a really good way of using today's episode is when we ask you to pause, when we've discussed the question, you could go away and write your answer and then you could listen to what we picked out and see, does that match what you picked out? What could you add in? What could you change? Absolutely. We will give you several moments to pause during this uh, during this episode. And even if you're not somewhere where you can write things down, even if you're listening on public transport or whatever, although I guess people aren't going out very much at the moment. But if you're listening somewhere where you can't write this down, still pause, I would say, still pause the episode. Think about what you would say and yeah. then come back to it and see if that matches up yeah. with uh, with the ideas that we give. If you're listening on your phone, you could get the handout up on your phone and just have a quick think, plan it in your head, because revision, active revision is always the most effective revision for any mm. subject, 
thinking about it yourself before you're being kind of told and talked through by us. But let's let's get straight in, I think. So the, the passage overall is an extract from Life of Pi. Um, uh, yeah, this um, this paper actually I bought from uh, from TES, and it's a fantastic resource. I can't remember, unfortunately, who I bought it off. But if you are the person who created this resource and you are listening, it is a very good paper. So thank you very much. And yeah, we're gonna we're gonna look at an extract from Life of Pi, which is a brilliant novel where the young protagonist is on a ship which is crossing the ocean which is also full of animals because his dad is a zookeeper and we join him at this terrifying moment in a huge storm where the ship is sinking and of course alongside all the normal terror you would associate with a ship going down in the middle of the ocean there are also wild animals running around everywhere which certainly increases the chaos and terror of the scene. Yeah. And so the question we're looking at question two today. So a quick reminder, um, Mr. Guy, can you talk through our listeners? What is question two? How long? You know, what is it? Question two is a question you want to spend about eight to ten minutes on. It will always focus you on a particular part of the extract and it will ask you uh, what the writer, how the writer is using language to achieve a particular effect. In this particular case, the question asks you. How does the writer use language to describe the narrator's fright and confusion? Now, what I always say to my students about this question is often students will have a perfect understanding of what the writer is doing and they will make really interesting, really insightful comments about the effect the writer has created. What they sometimes miss out and where a huge amount of their success will come from is by talking about how this has been created and where what they need to do in that regard is they really need to unpack the language. If they think they found a particularly interesting quotation, they then need to pull that language apart and really talk about why it puts the image in their head that it does. Sometimes students will say, oh, the writer uses personification to make things seem frightening. Now, that might be absolutely correct, but unless you've particularly pulled apart how the writer's creation of this idea of something being alive leads to the fear and tension, then you won't get very good marks for this question. I've, uh, I've pulled out some examples that I hope are going to really illustrate that as we go through it. But is there anything you want to add before we get into the question itself? Yeah. Is there anything you want to add to that? Yeah, the first one is in terms of exam techniques, different te- teachers will, you know, a quick thing here, suggest different timings, different ways of doing the paper. I actually generally suggest to my students you spend slightly longer, about 12 minutes, maybe even as much as 15 on this question. But so don't worry too much about the practical aspect. Listen to your teachers do what they're saying. But what I would say really strongly is to echo what Mr. Galley said. The one thing I always teach is what is the writer doing? How are they doing it? And, and why are they doing it? And the most important one is, is how, because having marked AQA for many, many years, this is the thing that separates the top bands on this question. How are you doing it? How is meaning created through the connotations of words, through the effects of metaphors? Um, and particularly, we're going to want to really look at figurative language. And um, one last thing on this before we kind of crack on with it is there's three bullet points that the examiners give us to, to analyze words and phrases, language features and techniques and sentence forms. A quick word of warning on sentence forms. There can be some really fascinating things to say about them, but generally students write really, really badly about it. So we'll give you some examples of what you could say that's good about them today, but um, you don't need to write about all three to get your eight marks. You could could get full marks simply looking at, at words and the connotations of words. Um, My advice on that would be unless 
you unless something specifically jumps out at you unless you happen to notice a really interesting thing to say about sentence forms then I would leave it I would say don't go hunting around and thinking I've got to find some kind of interesting thing to say about sentence forms if something jumps out at you fantastic use it if not I would say don't worry and instead put your focus on the writer's use of metaphor simile personification interesting words or phrases repetition anything like that will give you plenty to say and we've got a long list of techniques to look out for in our revision pack that's well worth um, looking at so so first thing sorry extract and then and then look at and then read the question i think let's let people read it in their own time let's let people pause the episode read through now the extract from life of pi when you have finished reading you can rejoin us okay pause now and read and welcome back as you We'll have seen then, this is an extract with a lot of fear and terror and panic and confusion in it. What I would say about answering question two is you need to have understood the whole extract in order to analyse it properly. The reason being the metaphors, the language, the images, the whatever you pick out, it might mean something different depending on the overall meaning of the whole text. Okay. For example, right, imagine if there was a if there was an extract where someone's eyes were described as being like the ocean, right? Now the the simple interpretation of that would be that their eyes were blue and that they were beautiful. However, if the extract was about a really complicated character, then the simile that the eyes were like the ocean might actually be about there being a huge degree of depth there and perhaps some things that we don't understand. So the point I'm trying to illustrate is the same image could mean something completely different depending on the extract itself. So you need to make sure you understand the whole extract before you get into the specific nitty gritty of the language. And to help you with that, the first thing you need to do is answer the question. Look at the question carefully. The question will give you a lot of clues as to what you're looking at. So should we read our question to start with? Yeah, absolutely. So it directs you to lines 13 to 25 of the source, which is from where were the officers and crew down to who in God's name had let it out. And the question is, how does the writer use language here to describe the narrator's fright and confusion? So we'll ask you to pause again. Look at that section of the extract and either... You can write your answer. You can select the, if you want to write a full answer, fantastic. If you just want to select the language you think you would use as a bit of revision, that's something else you could do. Or if you don't have access to pen and paper or a keyboard right now, just look at the extract, think about the bits you would choose and think about what you would say about them. Okay, pause the podcast now and have a go at that. All right, welcome back. So, We're going to go through some of the things that we would talk about with regards to this extract. Now, Mr. Forster, what I've done is the first one I've picked out is something that I think would be a classic example of not very interesting language to talk about. So the first thing I've picked out is at the start of the extract, the writer uses rhetorical questions to increase the pace and demonstrate confusion. So we've got this quotation, where were the officers and crew? What were they doing? Now, why, Mr. Forster, would you say that's a kind of mediocre, okay point to make, but not a fantastic point? 
Yeah, so I mean, one thing that I'd always say is having marked a heck of a lot of these over the years, um, often the ones that the quotations that don't really have much depth to them, um, everyone writes the same thing and they don't say, and they say can particularly things that don't seem linked to the context. So just commenting that there are rhetorical questions, they increase the pace. This is kind of a level two skill. This is, we're talking something like three marks, maybe four marks out of eight. Um, it's not particularly detailed it's not particularly in-depth and it doesn't really offer you much so it, you could mention this point but only as part of a wider point where you find other evidence that links into this kind of element of confusion coming from um, these rhetorical questions certainly writing right on its own is not going to really get you that many marks right absolutely and it's sort of once you've said okay the rhetorical questions show the confusion of the narrator and the fact that they are short fast rhetorical questions increases the pace there isn't really anywhere else to go, is there? You've kind of said everything you could say about it at that point in time. And actually, sorry, go on. So one thing you could do is if, you, if you did write about that is link in some other language points that have the same effect. So, for example, the repeated verb phrase, I thought I saw, which is repeated twice, the sense of this unreliable narrator who isn't in full control of what they're seeing. As soon as you mm. get that point as well, it would make it a slightly more sophisticated point. But um, Mr. Guy's right. You're making, you're making your life difficult starting there. There are some much easier places to begin by analysing. Absolutely. And the next example I've given, I think, highlights that. If you'd chosen the metaphor of an illusion being crafted by rain and shadow. So the narrator says um, that they're not sure whether something's real or not. Um, and they then they believe they see animals on the deck, but they dismiss this site as an illusion crafted by rain and shadow. Now, there's an awful lot you can do with this quotation here. So you've got the personification of both rain and shadow, okay? It's as if an illusion, like a magic trick, is being created by both rain and shadow. Now, obviously, rain can't do this, but and neither can shadow, but the writer feels like this illusion is being created by these things, almost as if they're living, thinking entities. Yeah. But I think you can take it even further. You've got this nice idea that rain is an elemental force, right? Earth, fire, air, and water are the four elements. And shadow has connotations more of the sort of supernatural world. So if I was analysing that, I'd want to say that the writer has personified both an elemental force like water, but also a supernatural force like shadow. And when you put them together, you get this idea that almost everything is personified and is working against the narrator. What would you say about that? Yeah, I think, and to, just to kind of, uh, you know, to really, really, really they're personified as a magician, as this magic trick. I mean, it's, of course, the pathetic fallacy, the, the natural world echoing and mirroring the emotions of the narrator. And what it actually really shows here is that is this sense of this, it adds to this dream sensation of this passage, um, this sense mm. of uncertainty, the sense of the first person narrator being unreliable, unable to control and dis precisely describe what they're seeing. So, so the crucial thing really is saying a lot about a little rather than a little about a lot. That's the kind of thing we're going to come back to again and again. Absolutely. Now, another thing I would always say with this part is to ask yourself some simple questions. Often students sort of say, oh, I don't know how to think like that. I don't know how to get to that point in the analysis. And the answer is quite simply just ask yourself a few simple questions about the language. If we take this next idea that the ship is described as giving a monstrous metallic burp okay, yeah, let's sticks, go through yeah. go on sorry what were you so, saying sir I, I would say just that is making sure we contextualize in quotations so the monstrous metallic burp comes 
burp comes as the ship's sinking. It's those, that groaning noise as, as it's preparing to sink underwater. Absolutely. So then you think to yourself, right, okay, so it's, obviously it's personification because a ship can't really burp. But what does it mean in the context of the fear of the narrator? Now, Mr. Forster, if I ask you a slightly odd question, where do burps come from? Yeah, they come from deep inside you. Yeah, and that's a simple question to ask, right? Any any student could probably think to themselves, okay, burping, where does burping come from? And the simple answer is when you when you do burp, it comes from deep within you. It comes from sort of your core, your center. Now, we then need to take that idea and we need to relate it to the ship. Why is it more frightening if this sound is coming from deep within the ship, would you say? Because it's the sense that something structurally has gone wrong. I think there's, there's two elements here. And I think one crucial thing in your analysis is you're evaluating. You're looking at different possibilities. It could suggest this. It could equally suggest this. So certainly on a one level, it suggests this um, that the, 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 there's some kind of deep structural damage to the ship. It's, it's, it's that noise, that groaning noise that happens as the ship sinks. There's also that secondary meaning, which is it's kind of there's this personification of the ship as a monster, the sense of it consuming, there being some kind of element of it consuming the narrator, it being hungry, having this kind of somatic is a wonderful word I often use here, like to do with your hunger, to do with your your, your bodily hunger. There's a sense of, of, of it being this monster preparing to consume him as well. Absolutely. And then having the two different interpretations really sets you off to a nice piece of analysis. You're saying on the one hand, okay, the burp could be the metaphor, the personification of the burp could be designed to make us sympathize with the ship as if the ship is sick and the ship is dying. But on the other hand, it could equally represent the idea that the ship is hungry, that the ship wants to consume everything on it. And like the sea, it wants to sort of eat up all the living creatures aboard the ship and actually both of those interpretations could really describe why this is such a terrifying situation so you'd, you'd have had a brilliant piece of analysis just from three words you've got two fantastic interpretations there the last thing i've pulled out is this idea that this ox this gower this wild animal bursts onto the deck of the ship you know imagine that you've already got the terror of the ship going down, but then you've got this almost supernatural, bizarre occurrence where you've got wild animals running around on the deck of the ship. And you've got this brilliant triadic structure to describe the animal as terrified, out of control and berserk. However, Mr. Forster, I think there's more going on here than just the description of the animal itself. Yeah, it's kind of echoing, isn't it? The um, there's this all the all this anthropomorphization of the animals. They're kind of echoing the human fear, aren't they? The monkeys. Um, you've, mm. you've you've put something in your notes here, haven't you? Haven't you about kind of this this mirroring of the narrator's feelings in the animals? Yeah, absolutely. I think when the narrator looks at that ox, he sees himself. Right, he sees the fear that he ultimately is feeling. But obviously, as humans. We're sort of told that we have to stay calm in a crisis, right? You sort of think, right, I, mu I mustn't panic. I must stay calm. So I think the narrator is feeling all the same emotions that this animal is feeling. You know, the narrator is feeling terrified. They're feeling out of control. They're feeling berserk. They want to let these, they, these emotions want to come out and take over them. But because of the, the human uh, inhibitions, because of the human belief that we have to stay calm, 
the narrator is trying not to feel like this, but I think when they look at this creature, what they're really seeing is a mirror of how they themselves are feeling. And yeah, yeah I've described it as zoomorphic mirroring. So you could say it in a number of ways, really, but I thought the, the triadic structure creating this zoomorphic mirroring of the narrator's own feelings, you've got quite a, ni- quite a lot of nice technical vocabulary in there. Yeah, and even the idea of the ox being berserk. Berserk is a word whose kind of roots comes from the old Norse berserkers who were um, ancient Norse warriors who fought in this wild and uncontrollable ferocity. The sen- so there's a sense of the, the ox being reduced to this kind of wild, uncontrollable state. Um, mm. It links to the verb of it exploding out of the rain, which I think is quite, you know, this is, is this violent interruption into onto the ship. And I think the, the point, the other the, to, to finish on here really is that all of these point, language points link together. This adds to the, to the sense of this being a dreamscape, to being an illusion crafted by brain and shadow. On a sinking ship, the last thing you expect to see is animals running everywhere. Obviously, in the novel, mm. it's because they're transporting a zoo to Canada, but we don't know that if we're reading that in the exam. So there's something dreamlike, something strange, something intensely disquieting about this passage. Um, Very with, much so. Um, that, that, that's kind of echoed through all of these features. Fantastic. Now, another thing you could do to practice, if you've just, uh, if you initially wrote out your own answer and you've now listened to what we've said, a really good idea could be to go back to what you wrote the first time around and now see if you can improve it based on the comments that we have made. Okay. All of this will be, will be very, very helpful in terms of improving. Obviously, we're talking about getting your, your writing up to a top level response. Some of this vocabulary is very difficult. Some of these ideas are quite advanced, but What I would always say to you is just interrogate yourself. Ask those questions, right? If you have... Yeah, and by asking some very simple questions of yourself, you'll get to some high-level analysis, right? The ship is burping. What do we associate with burps? Similarly, this wild animal is rampaging around the ship. Is the author doing anything more than just showing an animal running around? Could the animal represent something? By asking yourself these relatively simple questions, you will arrive at a much higher level of analysis. Now, I think that's probably about it for today, sir. So thank you everyone for joining us. Please give us a follow on Twitter at G Revision Pods, where we always let you know when we've got new episodes uh, coming out and that kind of thing. You can email us direct questions. What's that email address, Mr. Forster? Uh, EnglishRevisionPod at gmail.com. Fantastic. Thank you very much. And we will see you next time when we're going to tackle a question three with this same extract on English Revision Pod. Have a very nice day.